Hello, and welcome to another episode of Essential Esports, where Bryce doesn't allow me to tell him to mute his mic, even though he knows he's going live to stream because I tell him 10 times because he doesn't like it when I make fun of him when he can't talk back. So yeah. welcome, Bryce. <laughs> Thank you. Good, good to be here. Happy to have defended myself now and always. <laughs> he can't shut up. True lawyer traits. And joining us, uh, a man that many of you have never seen. In fact, you may not be able to see him right now because he has ominously backlit himself, the shadow lord, <laughs> <laughs> the shadow lord of the LCS Players Association. Thank you for joining us, Haldiagas. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so this is going to be an interesting episode for those of you who are curious about particularly how the Players Association works within League of Legends. And then I think it's going to be interesting to talk about how um, we could see it evolve across esports or the difference between players associations and players unions, because I feel like this is one of those areas that really has flown under the radar for fans is that they don't really even understand what the difference is legally. And Bryce is here because he represents many of the teams, which means that we have both sides of the negotiating process here. So we can kind of talk about how that operates currently, um, how players do negotiate their contracts, what protections they have from both sides. Um, Bryce is also responsible for writing what is considered the standard LCS player contract at this point in time. So he has he has given many concessions to the players. Very generous contract to the players, Bryce. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I paid for that contract, by the way. Just just put that I uh, just put that you out did. there. I, I actually paid for that one. So good job to Monty, really, at the end of the day. Doing a solid for the players. Um <laughs> All right, so let's start off. <laughs> yeah, it's not so bad, right? Uh, let's start off with with Hal. Why don't you <laughs> Why don't you start off with your background, just so people kind of understand who you are and and why you're you're part of the LCS Players Association now? Sure. So I started off as a I'm a lawyer. I've um, been I started off practicing in business litigation. Um, after a few years, uh, I moved over to the sports side of the um, of the legal profession. I worked at the NBA Players Association for uh, about 12 years as deputy general counsel. Um, was involved in all aspects of our of our business there, negotiating, uh, including negotiating collective bargaining agreements with the NBA, representing players in grievance uh, proceedings with their teams and or the leagues, uh, assisting players and agents in contract negotiations, um, and basically anything connected with the relationship between players, their teams, and, and the league. Um, after about uh, after my 12 years at the Players Association, I went uh, to the agency side. First, I worked at Wasserman. Um, and, Very big uh, agency for people who don't know. Yes, thank you. Um, Los Angeles-based agency. Um, has a sports practice, but also is broader than that. Uh, represents companies as a sponsorship business, as a naming rights business. But our sports business was... Um, where I worked, I was effectively, my title was kind of long and unwieldy. So let's just say I was chief operating officer of the um, athlete representation group. Um, we represented clients in basketball, in the NBA, the NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, professional soccer. We had an Olympic sports division and a women's sports division. And my role was to help um, manage and oversee the operations of all the agents, the legal, the marketing, PR. Um, basically anything that touched our, our athlete clients. Um, after uh, a few years at Wasserman, I um, moved back to New York to take a job at Excel Sports. Uh, at Excel, I was general counsel and also started a new division representing coaches, 
front office executives and broadcasters um, in pro and college sports. Um, after about four, four and a half years at Excel, I left, started my own agency, um, basically taking uh, the business that I was doing at Excel and, and doing it on my own. That's called Sideline Sports Management. Uh, shortly after doing that, I was approached um, about the possibility of helping uh, the players, um, the LCS players, organize and become um, uh, a players association, uh, potentially eventually a union. Um, and, um, you know, the idea was intriguing, uh, something that, uh, you know, I'd always, I, I missed working at a players association. I enjoyed like that, that, you know, direct relationship you have with, uh, all the players, as opposed to just the players that you represent when you're with an agency, um, you know, you're fighting for a common goal and, and, uh, you know, for the benefit of all the members. And so the opportunity to go back and work at a players association, particularly one where, you know, we were starting at the ground floor and could build something, you know, basically take the best practices of, of, you know, what other players associations were and create, you know, our own entity that was going to be um, the best and, and, and first in, in the esports space and, and one of the best in the business. Um, and um, so the, the opportunity was, was, uh, was presented. I jumped at it. Uh, there was a riot helped um, the players with the process. They vetted the, uh, the different groups and individuals and eventually presented a group of us to the players. We presented our vision of the players association to the, to the players that were at the meeting and the players then um, selected me to um, start their, uh, their players association. So we've been in existence now for just about uh, three years. Um, we have a, a group of player leaders as well. And in addition to myself who helped run the organization, we have a five person executive committee. I think you guys are familiar with that. Um, uh, Darshan is the president, uh, Biofrost is the secretary treasurer, and then the vice presidents are, are uh, Bjergsen, Doublelift, and, and Golden Glue. And um, in addition to that, each team has a player representative who is our, our conduit for information flow to and from the, the, the players on each team. And um, yeah, and so, you know, we've been working on a lot of different initiatives. I'm sure we can talk about some of those as we go along, but um, that's sort of... Uh, you know, who I am and, and how I got to be where I am. Thank you. And Bryce, many of, many of you know Bryce's background. He's been working with the teams for many years right now. Uh, he has his own law firm, ESG Law. Uh, he, he represents TeamSide. Anything you'd like to say, Bryce? Yeah, the only thing I would, you know. Semi-pro TFT player. Semi-pro TFT player, yeah. <laughs> aspiring, aspiring professional player, soon to be client of Hal. Um, yeah, I, the only thing I would add is that I, I mean, I've been in the space since 2013 when I started, I actually did a lot of player side work. Um, and so I've, I've seen this from both the player side and the team side over the course of my career. Although, uh, I about at some point in time, I had to basically pick a side for a con lawyer conflict of interest reasons and uh, wound up doing team side work exclusively since about, I think the beginning of 2015. Hmm. Interesting that you can make independent choices about conflict of interest reasons, but maybe we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to hold yourself to a standard. Actually, you you have to legally. It's not even an option. But yeah, 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 sure. yeah. <laughs> that gets I into like the, that yeah. gets into the difference between an ethical conflict of interest and an actual legal conflict of interest. But you know, as long as he wants to keep his license, he's got to uh, <laughs> exactly. <hear> <laughs> <laughs> Bryce Bryce is in the serious legal conflict of interest mode, but. 
So let's let's talk about the formation of the LCS Players Association. So we'll talk about how it differentiates between this differentiates to a union in a moment. But first off, what were the core issues that the formation of the Players Association was trying to solve? Uh, I don't know that there were any like, you know, there were any particular issues. Um, you know, I, I think they were conceptual. I think the idea behind the formation of the Players Association was um, as the LCS was moving to the franchising model for ownership, um, that the players needs uh, needed a counterbalance, um, you know, a group of, you know, to, to be organized as a group, to have a unified voice, um, you know, cohesion on issues and professional leadership. So the idea was, you know, there wasn't any, it wasn't like, you know, Major League Baseball with, you know, the flood case where they were seeking free agency. Um, you know, there wasn't like the, a particular galvanizing issue that needed to be addressed. It was really sort of uh, more, um, it was proactive and, um, you know, just designed to create an organization that would be there to represent the player's interest and, um, you know, establish a structure where, um, you know, there was a, 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 a place for the players to go, for the teams to address issues, for Riot to address issues. And if I can just add a, a slight amount of color there, because, um, you know, no, you how can't talk. That's the purpose of this. Of, of, of Major League Baseball Player Association, which I think is really interesting. I think um, for those of you who don't know your sports legal history, which I don't know why you would, basically all sports players associations were founded from a similar place of this extreme control that was being exerted at the team league level over the players. And so, you know, at the time there was a thing in baseball called the reserve clause. Basically you were stuck with your team. Like there was no concept of free agency. You didn't get the opportunity to go out to the free market. And so your compensation was drastically lower as a result. And there are similar stories in basically every major U S based, uh, you know, stick and ball sport in terms of these players starting from like this extreme, extreme position of a lack of lights rights a lack of flexibility in their decision making and so these organizations came up to kind of tackle these acute problems whereas in esports it almost are like from the opposite end of the spectrum like there was basically like very little control and there were no rules around this stuff so there was an enormous amount of you know player mobility and things like this there were other there are definitely other problems i uh, make no secret about that uh, but but it was a it's a very different kind of starting place for this than uh, what happened in in u.s traditional sports agreed i mean i think i the way i look at esports is that you know under the current system you know what's interesting about bryce talking about how in baseball there was the the factor of the owner sort of uh, suppressing the players in certain ways or preventing their movement. Whereas mostly for the history of esports, actually, I shouldn't say that. Mostly for the last eight years of esports, let's say that, and especially in more established games like League of Legends and Counter Strike and some of the bigger games, it actually has been for the most part a player market. And if anything, the players have generally been the big winners of the esports scene i would say in that orgs themselves are actually spending significant sums of money frequently at a loss in order to pay extremely large player salaries so in my perspective the way that we have gone is sort of an unsustainable and non-profitable for the most part tack for the organizations and for the leagues and the big winners have been the players who are making money hand over fist right now 
accurate. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let Hal go first on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, first rice there. Thanks, Bryce. Appreciate yeah. that. Uh, I mean, look, I, I think that um, the players are certainly fairly well compensated. Um, the problem is we don't really know what the revenue picture is like from the team side and the riot side. Fair. So, you know, without knowing, you know, what, what actual revenues are, um, you know, what, what deals aren't being done for whatever reason, um, you know, it's hard to say, you know, what the, um, you know, whether or not players are receiving true value. And, and, you know, then there's also going to be an argument about what is true value. Uh, you know, players will always make the case, I think fairly, fairly so that, you know, the players are the game without the players, there is no, there is no sport. Um, and, you know, historically in professional sports, you see a revenue split somewhere between, um, well, since the advent of unions, at least somewhere between, you know, the mid forties and, you know, 60, 65% at, at highs in, in basketball and, and hockey um, and baseball at different eras. So, you know, you, you, there are a lot of questions there. It's a lot to unpack. Um, but I think the, the you know, the, the key takeaway is without really knowing a full revenue picture, it's impossible to say what, um, you know, what a, a fair distribution would be. There's also yeah. the, the other factor, which is that when you have developer run esports, and that's particularly true with Riot, that it is also the esports wing is a marketing exercise for the game. And it even for Riot, it's likely impossible to know what their esports revenue is because it is a form of advertisement and it is difficult i'm sure they have some vague idea or like some internal metrics of like who's watching the lcs and how much they're spending in league of legends where they can say hey we've got a bunch of whales who are, are watching the uh, who are watching the lcs and who are spending hundreds of dollars on the game of league of legends so clearly this is an effective way to keep these people involved and invested within the game um but that said, Riot has said many times, we don't want to be NASCAR. We don't want to do all of these deals. We want to find the right deals. So, and in fact, up until I would say the last year, Riot really hasn't shown an interest or a capacity. You pick which one that is uh, of getting sponsorships or even monetizing well. And to this day, they don't have a media rights deal. So they have decided to go for the approach where they broadcast on all platforms. At one time years ago, they had a media rights deal that never got paid, which was their $300 million MLB advanced media deal. But mm -hmm. that went away. It dissolved, uh, I think, as a result of the purchase by Disney. Um, I'm not exactly clear on why that deal went south or why it, why it dissolved, but it did. Um, and they haven't sold the rights since then. Now, personally, like I would be surprised if they didn't sell the rights in the future, given that we've now seen Activision Blizzard go out and make very significant deals that uh, are monetizing. And I also think that there's an internal pressure at Riot to actually make the esports side of things lose less money, um, if not be profitable in the long term. So that is all to say that, yes, like, it's it is I agree for these reasons it's hard to know because you can't know revenue that the players have. Correct. And and the other, you know, like to your point, there's a concept in traditional sports of related parties. And, you know, it's it's you know, you've got a team owner who, you know, in addition to owning the team, owns the broadcast network that the team's sure. teams are broadcast on, owns the arena that the team plays in, you know, maybe owns the the um the hospitality company that that serves the you know serves the food or runs the restaurants in the arena or the stadium and you know based on on which business they want the money to 
you know, to reflect from, they can shift the revenues around. They can cut themselves a sweetheart deal on the media rights. They can cut themselves a sweetheart deal on the arena lease, um, you know, or overcharge if that's, you know, if that's their preference. So, and, you know, you see a similar thing in the esports space because, you know, the, the team owners also own other entities. And as you point quick, you know, pointed out, um, Steely pointed out, you know, Riot um, has different motivations for what its LCS yeah. um, is. So, you know, there, there's just, you know, it, and I don't know that these issues are ever solvable, um, but, you know, at this point, there's just not a lot of information out there. Yeah, I think the the vertical integration of sports teams it, it doesn't really, I mean, there are limited exceptions to this, right, where there is the concept of related parties probably could apply at the team level here. It's mostly an issue at the league level. And, you know, when we're talking about what is fair, right? I mean, Monty, Monty kind of started with the premise that the, the players are really uh, the ones making the money. I, I agree the players overall get a good shake in esports. I really believe that. Um, and obviously, I'm extremely biased when making that statement. But That's I'm okay. I'm unbiased, and I think it's true. So. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, I'm, biased. I'm biased, and I'll say it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, but, but, you know, the people who are really printing money in the esports space are the publishers, right? Like, those yes. are the people who are really making the money. And, and you know, th- we would be crazy to assume that there is no there has been no analysis from a data perspective on the value oh, yeah. of, of esports to we just don't know question. what it is yeah we don't know what it is and, and i imagine it's pretty hard to quantify like you said i imagine there's it's not like a one-to-one thing where they have data that's like definitively this is how much money we generate off of league of legends because of our esports program but they've quantified it on some level in some room somewhere and we'll never get that data so while you know we're trying to answer the question of what is quote-unquote fair right as a totality of circumstances analysis how is saying he's only working with you know this part of the pie he doesn't have the team revenues he doesn't have the you know what's going on at the league slash uh more importantly probably at the publisher level i'm in a similar boat i i have what's going on at the the team level but i don't have what's going on at the publisher level mm-hmm. which is obviously a huge part of this equation uh, but you know to, to answer your kind of core framing like I do agree with that. I, I think team. I think a lot of the conversation around player exploitation is carryover from like five, six years ago. Yes. Um, and I get why. And there was a lot of. Yes. There were a lot of really bad actors, and there were a lot of really <laughs> bad actions. And I. It, it was a huge part of what galvanized me to get into the space. And I did an enormous amount of that kind of work still do with the occasional, you know, pro bono player situation uh, to this day where players are getting absolutely screwed over by some party and do what I can to help them get paid basically. Um, But the reality of the situation is things have evolved greatly since then. Right. Like we have, we have actual data around this. Like I can't remember if you announced for this year, but greatly last year said the average salary in the LCS was just over $300,000. Right. That's a lot of money. And, and, you know, the premise Monty was giving that teams are not making money is correct. I mean, this is not a secret. It's something that's been openly discussed by many teams uh, and team owners throughout the industry, right? Um, There are a bunch of reasons why that's the case. We could dive into it if it's interesting, but the reality is because so much venture money poured into the space and because everyone needed to spend that money to compete, to be better than the other teams, player salaries inflated beyond what is reasonable revenue reasonably possible revenue generation in return for their rights. It's just a fact of the current situation. Uh, you know, it, the there are other advantages teams have gotten, right? Like it's increased their venture value. There's, a, you know, it's bet on the future. These are very much startups. It's a much different kind of foundation to the ecosystem than what we saw in traditional sports. So I'm not like crying poor or saying that this is like unfair. This is just the way the market has shaken out. Um, and I'm a big believer in the free market. So this is kind of what's happening. Um, but if the question is, if the question of whether or not this is fair is purely, 
if we look at the other the tier one esports overwatch league of legends counter-strike you know whatever um can do our players salaries proportionate to the the direct monetary value they're driving for teams as a result the answer is no they're too high yeah and i I, this is like super complicated too because part of this has been an industry incompetence of knowing the value of the space honestly like you know you can knock overwatch league or activision blizzard as much as you want but the fact that they're selling at the at the level that they are like they have the best sales team in esports period and it's like not even close really uh, riot's catching up Riot's they are doing a really they are job in the last year i agree year and I, a half. that's why i'm that's why i'm anticipating a, a media rights deal soon but the point is is like the the sales side has has been i would say lackluster because again it hasn't been the publisher's primary motivation um because it's it's a marketing tool as well they aren't motivated in the same way as an independent broadcaster or an independent entity would be to get this money um, it has so as a result, this also affects, especially in the franchise era. And I think this is why it's interesting that all of the players' association, all this stuff is happening around franchising. Because now that we're in some level of partnership and profit sharing, well, now you know it. There's a lot more pressure on the developers to get money for the actual broadcast and try and monetize in more meaningful ways and and really sell to the value of the market because frankly a lot of sponsors were getting steals uh in the esports space that you know prime demographic enormous viewership market that has checked out of traditional media and they were getting very very good value for the dollar a uh, couple things, if I may. Um, first, I'll, I'll I'll share some information here that uh, um, Bryce alluded to. Average salaries last year of over three hundred thousand. I'll break it on your show that um, this year we we eclipsed four hundred thousand as an average LCS salary. Damn, four hundred ten thousand dollars. Um, breaking news. <laughs> breaking news. Mimic esports. <laughs> Essentially esports. We changed the name of the show. <laughs> thanks, thanks to the advertisement, Bryce. <laughs> and and we'll, we'll toot our own horn a little bit on this. Um, the uh, this past year was the first year where we really had a, a complete salary or relatively complete salary database that we shared with the players and the player agents, which in that, which allowed them to go into their negotiations with the teams on a much more equal footing. Um, well, you know, leveling the playing field by giving them the information of their of their peers and their salaries. So um, I think that was helpful and in, in for many players in their negotiations and something that we'll continue to see uh, benefit players going forward. And, um, you know, the other point just about teams and, and revenues, and I, I don't I don't disagree that, you know, there's definitely been um, a lack of, of concerted effort to maximize revenues um, at both the team and the riot level. Um, you know, a fair number of deals either left on the table or not explored. But, you know, when we, when we talk about whether or not teams are making money, it, the, the problem I always have with these um, these situations are, you know, it doesn't account for the, the inherent value of the team. And, you know, for instance, teams that bought in franchising, even the outside teams that paid $13 million in 2017 um, for their LCS slot, um, you know, those, those teams have now have an established value north of $30 million. So, you know, even if you've lost, you know, a million dollars, you know, $2 million a year, you know, if you sell your team for a $20 million profit, you know, you've made a lot of money on a very short-term investment. So, you know, whether or not franchise values will continue to appreciate, you know, we'll have to see, but, you know, you look at traditional sports and where those franchise values have gone just in the last 10 or 15 years, 
from several hundred million dollars to basically you can't touch a sport and base you can't touch a team in baseball, basketball, or football for less than a billion, a billion and a half dollars. You know, that that's even if you lose a lot of money over a lot of years, when you sell something for 10, 15, 20, 50 times X, you're making a lot of money in the end. Yes. And and to be fair, the valuations on these and when we talk when you're talking about like 50x revenue, it's a scarcity thing. Right. Because there's only a, in this, it's the same way in traditional sports. Right. It's a toy for super rich people. And because you can only have 32 toys in the NFL, they end up getting way, way more valuable just because of their scarcity. It doesn't operate as a normal business would. Like, you wouldn't look at a normal business and say, should I value this at 50x revenue? Like, nobody does that. So it's it's a very weird space that is sort of a strange luxury market for the ultra-rich as well. Um, and, I mean, I think you see that sort of mentality playing in, especially when you see like um, traditional sports athletes start to buy into these teams because they're viewing it as, as sort of the wave of the future. And they're not rich enough to like own a, an, an NBA team, even if they are an, the, an NBA superstar, right? That's There's the thing. about hundred people, hundred people in the world who are rich enough to own an NBA <laughs> right. and NFL yeah. team. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. It's becoming a problem. Like, you know, like the market for, for potential buyers is, is really, really, you know, scarce or, you know, and, or sparse. And, you know, you've seen leagues even more recently um, adapt uh, where the, they're allowing different ownership models. You know, it doesn't just have to be one person who, you know, is the primary owner. So, and, you know, I don't know that esports will get there anytime soon, but, you know, it's, de it's definitely, it's a scarcity thing for sure. Um, it's an opportunity to invest in sports and um, especially in a market that's growing as much as esports has grown in the last five to 10 years. And in addition to all that, the scarcity thing, it's also, as we talked about before, it's the vertical integration possibilities as well. You know, uh, having other businesses that that feed off of your primary business or your primary business feed off your ancillary businesses for some of these people. Yeah. And I, I do think it also for those of you who are wondering why VC is spending so much money here. Well, you know, if you bet on the right pony here, you're ending up with a business that could be around for decades if not longer like a traditional sports team and you're also dealing with something that has such an insane valuation that if some if a, a a super rich person one of these hundred people decides that this is the shiny new toy that they want well your your exit on that investment is going to be nuts right so there's there are a lot of reasons why so i i do appreciate because this is a more well-rounded and nuanced conversation about player value because operating at a loss right now does not necessarily mean that a team owner who is spending more money than they are currently taking in is not somehow down the road going to sell their team to Jeff Bezos for, you know, $500 million. Right. So that's just something that, that could happen. Right. And this is why, like, I tried to make a really narrow statement when I was talking about, like, what is quote unquote fair. It's just, it's fairness is such a broad term, and there's so many different variables that are going into this analysis. I think the real problem with this debate when it happens on social media is the unbelievable lack of nuance to the conversation, hmm. right? There is it's almost so like much. That's what social media yeah. does. Right. It's just, the, the rea <laughs> it, it's, it's not, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. It's just, I, I like, there's a reason why every once in a while when I decide to wade into complex topics like this, it requires like 
12 or 15 tweets, right? Like it, there's just so much that you have to unpack in order to even have an opinion about this. Normally when I get involved, it's not, I'm not even giving it an opinion. I'm just like, hey, here's a bunch of background information that like both sides are ignoring as part of this conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean like how am I going to have a five-hour debate on this topic and I think it would be fascinating, and I don't know that there is a right answer to it, right? Like, he's going to have his perspective, I'm going to have mine. But uh, the important thing is that we're actually unpacking some of that nuance to engage in the discussion. Well, that's the purpose of this show, to talk about industry issues and shed light for people on these on these kind of topics that people often opine about but have very little insight, especially directly from the people who are involved. So I think, like, this is super important to kind of set, uh, uh, you know, the foundation of the, the discussion around these conversations. And we can have more talks about this. In fact, we'll probably, uh, I'm trying to set it up with the head of the Counter-Strike Players Association as well, so that we can talk about this same cool. topic in a different game. So we'll get around, you know, this show will keep on rolling, and we'll get more of these topics in motion. Uh, let's talk about now something I alluded to previously, which is the difference for the plebs between a player's association and a player's union and the positives and negatives of both? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll start off and then uh, Bryce can, can jump in. Um, so the primary difference is um, the, the legal rights that you have. So when you're a player's association or in, in, our, in our case, a trade association, you um you know we're we're officially recognized entity we're we're incorporated in in a state and um you know we we um have copyrights and trademarks on our name and our logo and and um you know we are a, a business entity a nonprofit business entity um and the, the a, a union is similarly situated except the union operates under the um the the confines of the national labor relations act so you're subject to governmental regulation. And uh, in addition to that, it affords you certain rights that you don't have when you're just a trade association, primarily the right to collectively bargain. Um, and uh, you know, these are rights that are in, um, in, ensconced in, in statutes going back nearly 100 years. And um, the, the ability to collective bargain, collectively bargain means that the employer is obligated to sit down and talk with you over the terms and conditions of the employment of the, the members of the union. So, you know, you, you, you negotiate over salaries, over benefits, over number of games hours, played, number of games played, working conditions, um, free agency, uh, draft, um, basically anything that, that is, is part of the employment relationship. When you're a trade association, you don't have those same rights. Um, our ability to negotiate is based on, on, on any leverage that we're able to to generate on on goodwill that you know riot and the teams may want to uh, um, show toward the players and, um, and you know we have other rights I mean other abilities as well you know there are legal challenges we can bring if we think actions that teams are doing are improper uh, you know we've had some issues or discussions in the past about teams uh, not complying with the Fair Labor Standards Act which is a uh, uh, both a state and federal law that requires employers um, you know, uh, cap hours of work and make sure that pay is commensurate with the hours that players are that that employees are being asked to work. Um, and you know, there are other uh, options as well. Uh, one of the other big differences, one of the other reasons to maintain um, uh, an, uh, the existence as an association as opposed to a union, is when you're a union, you 
basically give up your right to bring um, a legal action under the antitrust laws. Um, and when you're a trade association, you still retain those rights. And those are extremely valuable rights. It basically means that teams and or league can't act collusively to impact the marketplace. So the teams couldn't all get together and say, okay, no one's, we agree that no one is going to pay a single player more than $250,000 or, you know, we're not going to negotiate for each other's free agents. Those would be violations of, of the Sherman Act and um, would, would avail uh, the Players Association of the right to bring an antitrust action. And one of the, the key components of an antitrust action is if you win, you get three times whatever you can show your damages to have been. So as part of this, like this means that if there was a players union, guys, and this is the difference, is that you could, from the player side, have more control as we've seen with the NFL these days, like the NFL has just negotiated with its players union. They have a, they have a new collective bargaining agreement that did things like change the number of playoff games, right? Or is in the process of doing that. I actually don't know if that's been settled yet. Has it? Does anybody know? Yeah, it's been, it's been it's ratified. Done? Okay, it's been yeah. ratified. Great. So they, they've said, we're going to change the number of games in the season, regular season. And so all of this, the players go into a negotiation and get things back in return however it does allow the league and the teams to all bargain against them meanwhile right now the teams it is illegal for the teams to talk to one another and say hey we all agree that we are going to to set a salary cap for ourselves to keep the cost of the players down now that can't happen it is a completely free market on the player side, but it also means that they're not able to uh, really control the format or control a lot of the playing conditions. Correct? Yeah, I mean that's generally correct. But you know, like I would, I would, I would dispute a little bit of what you said. You know, like, sure, it's a negotiation, and you know, both sides have things that they want to achieve out of out of a negotiation. From from our perspective, right now, and I think Bryce would probably agree. We've got a pretty a system that's pretty player favorable. Now, you know, the big question is, you know, if we were in a collective bargaining relationship, we'd probably have a better perspective on what the revenues were. Um, but, you know, aside from that, and and certainly players would want to have greater control over their over their name, image, likeness rights, and and you know the the ability of the teams to control those and act as their sponsor agent or their marketing agent. Um, but, you know, we have a system right now that unlike almost any other sport where we don't have any restrictions on free agency. The players can can leave and go to any team that they want to, either domestically or internationally after their contract is over. Um, they there are no there's no salary cap. So teams aren't saying we're not paying more than X amount in total to employ all the players on our team. There's no draft. You know, players get to pick where they want to play when they first sign with the team. And, but and by the way, guys, for those like, wondering, this is why there's no draft because that's been yeah. talked about a lot. And the key aspect of any league is you will know when there's an actual players union, because everyone would love to draft from the team side, like from the, the league side, and the team side, everyone would love to do that basically. So the reason why there isn't a draft is because that is not possible unless there is a collective bargaining agreement in place. Okay. Sorry for interrupting. Exactly. No, no, not at all. Uh, great point. And, um, you know, and look, some of the other things that you like to have when you're when you're negotiating is is minimum salaries. We actually already have those, yep. you know, riot, you know, riot established minimums at both the academy and the LCS level. You know, we could argue about whether they're high enough, but 
you know, they're certainly respectable minimum salaries. And, um, you know, so that's something we don't have to worry about. We don't have to worry about a player getting paid $5,000, um, you know, and, and being com completely taken advantage of. So, um, you know, there, look, there are a lot of pros to be gained by a, a collectively bargained relationship. And there are things that we would certainly want, but there are also things that, you know, I know, and we know that the owners want. And, um, you know, at this point, I, I think it's it wouldn't be advantageous for, uh, you know, for that uh, for those negotiations to happen. And this is, by the way, like such a fascinating dynamic, because before Hal entered the space with his wealth of experience in seeing what it actually is like to be on the inside of a players union, one of the most common things for the internet to decry is the lack of a players union and the need for a players union it was a whole bunch of people who don't understand any of these dynamics who are like we need this this is the cure-all every time a player gets screwed <laughs> over if only there were a union would fix everything <laughs> and it's just so much more complicated than that like there are so many reasonable minds could disagree by the way about what is the what would be net quote quote the best for the players the best for the league or the best for the teams in this there is not a clear answer to this there are there are absolutely benefits teams have right now and league has right now in the current environment without a players union there are some things that would make their lives harder if there were union but there are things that would make their lives better right the, we talked about we hit on like the big stuff free agency draft salary cap there's a whole bunch of ancillary things that wind up getting associated with these concepts like for example it's not just the fact that there's a draft there's also rookie contracts right yes. which are of a much smaller scale basically in all traditional sports where the the it's protection for the owners that like hey we don't know that much about this player yet let's see how this player's career involves and then they can make a bigger contract their second contract let's protect all of us so no one's spending too much money on an unproven rookie right um, there's things like franchise tagging and other benefits that teams get to uh, have special rights to sign a player basically again not against their will is a weird way of putting it but kind of is against their will right like there are tons of times when in the nfl for example a player will get franchise tagged which is basically there's a formula calculus where yes. a team can say you get our franchise tag you're playing for us for this on this one year contract you must play on this contract and there's a formula that dictates how much we have to pay you uh, and that's oftentimes uses leveraging negotiations where a player will say i want a six-year hundred million dollar deal and the team will say well we don't think you're worth that we want to give you a four-year 50 million dollar deal and by the way if you don't play ball with us and find some you know meet in the middle close to where we are by the way we'll just franchise tag you and like Good luck playing next season for this. You, you get one season if you get hurt. Good luck with your free agency value in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's less money than you want to make anyway. So it's a really – there's also – I could go on and on. There are so many examples of things like this that exist in the traditional sports, the unionized traditional sports world. Um, and all yeah, of this stuff – Baseball has oh. six years before you get the free agency or salary, yeah. or three years of salary arbitration where your salary is constrained. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, there, there are all yeah. these issues that that restrict the marketplace both ways. Right. Yeah, both ways. Right. And so it, it like the, it benefit it, it can some of these rules hurt players. Some of these rules help players. Right. Uh, and same thing with the team at the team league level. Right. But it's really interesting when you have the head of the LCS players association saying like, Hey, I think on balance, probably we're better off not being a union. I've been saying that for a long time. Like I think the players it, we're starting from a fundamentally different place in terms of like labor negotiation history and esports than we are in traditional than we did in traditional sports way back when. And I think 
as as correct as it was to move to unions there, it's not necessarily correct to do it here, which is not to say there will never be players unions. I, it would not surprise me if ultimately there were. I, there are advantages to it. It's just a really complex analysis. Uh, and there's a, it's when you when you unionize, you're taking a lot of bad in with the good that comes with it. And by the way, one good that we haven't mentioned yet, good from a player's perspective, is the formal right to strike, the formal right to, to lock out, right? These are rights protect that are federally protected where unions have these rights and a trade association does not, um, right? And so uh, just just to kind of round out the picture since we've talked about most of the kind of big ticket items in relation to unions. What is the What are the issues then with having unions where you have so many players that are competing internationally? Like it does that affect, let's say, when the players go to China to play in Worlds for six weeks and then they're also competing with and against other players who are not part of the association or the union? Does that do any weird things? Uh, that's a really interesting question. And um, yeah, I, look, I think it's a challenge certainly for a league like Overwatch League, which has yeah. you know, teams in, in multiple countries, you know, multiple legal jurisdictions, you know, like their ability to unionize, even to form a trade association is, is much more complicated than, you know, the LCSPA, which is just based in, in North America. I mean, really just you know, the U.S. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of, of international competitions, you know, if, in a collective bargaining agreement, like any concepts that arose out of that would be covered. Um, you know, you would you would negotiate about, um, you know, that the, the conditions of employment, you know, would have to be similar. They'd have to be, um, you know, there'd have to be suitable accommodations and travel and and the arena conditions would have to be, you know, fine and, and their security, all those things. Um, you know, we haven't had issues around that. So it, it hasn't been a problem that we've had to uh, encounter. But, uh, you know, certainly that would be something that would be key to key to a key component of a collective bargaining agreement. I just want to backtrack real quick. One one other thing that that is another nuance, another big factor in, in the idea about unionizing versus um, remaining as a trade association is the role that Riot plays in, in this in this complex um, you know, diagram in the tr in the traditional sports sense, <laughs> the role of Riot is the is the role of the league. Um, yes. and, and the league is collectively owned by the teams, guys. So what yeah, what we're saying here is that uh, just to be to explain it very quickly for people who don't know, in traditional sports, the league is the one who controls league operations and who nominates and employs the commissioner and the league operations office, right? In this case, Riot is an independent league operations entity who appoints their own leadership and own commissioner that is independent of the teams and which, as far as I know, the teams have no method of influencing. I mean, we have let like the same stuff that Hal was talking about in a trade association world, right? It's leverage and uh, goodwill and all these types of things, but it's there is no... You know, in the NFL, you can the teams can vote and fire Roger Goodell. Yes. They pay his salary. They can yes. fire him. That's not the dynamic here, right? I, I, Chris, I Chris wish Greeley, it was. I wish it was in certain esports. Chris Greeley's cool though. Anyway, continue. Chris Greeley's great, and he's the <laughs> and he's the commissioner of the LCS and a Riot employee, right? Yeah. Which is a, a cool so, distinction. Anyway, Hal, that just I'm trying to get part of the show is introducing people to these concepts, so we have to yeah. explain like how it's different. So continue. Yeah, no. So I was just, you know, I, I think you, you you hit all the points that, and, you know, you and Bryce that, you know, Riot stands in a unique position relative to the traditional sports model where, you know, they're an independent entity. And in fact, you know, this is they literally own the ball. You know, if they wanted to just pack it up and go home, you know, there'd be little recourse that anybody, you know, would have to stop them. 
So, you know, if they decided one day that this wasn't, it wasn't profitable enough, it was too much of a headache, or they, you know, it affected their core business. Um, if they just wanted to stop the league the next day, you know, there's little that anybody could do about it. I haven't seen the franchise agreements and, and what rights the, the teams might have, but, you know, th they own the intellectual property of the game. Um, they've established the league, uh, you know, and there, there can't be competitors. Nobody else can start an LC, you know, a League yes. of Legends game. You know, unlike, you know, like, you, you know, this past year, we saw the XF, the XFL as a competitor to the NFL. Um, you know, those those kind of things can't happen in esports. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting tri-party negotiation dynamic that is completely different than what we see in traditional sports. And I actually wrote an article way back when in like 2014 talking about collective bargaining in esports. Foster Pepper. And I was at Foster Pepper. Yeah. And, and what I theorized at the time is that. In the end, if there ever is a formal three-party system um, that is, you know, adopted here, that the teams and players, in contrast, to traditional sports will be far more aligned at the bargaining table than they will be separated. That the the really there are a few issues, right, that are that are kind of team versus player issues. And we see those play out today and they'll continue to play out, right? Like a team would rather play a pay player less money and the player would rather make more money. A team would rather have more rights of, you know, <clears throat> the player's IP and the player would rather the team have fewer rights, that kind of thing. Um, but that overall, the team and player interests because of this third party league operator dynamic are considerably more aligned than they are divergent. Um, so who knows how it's all going to play out, but I still believe that to this day, by the way, like when we're talking about kind of transparency and seeing the whole pie, like, uh, you know, both how and I would love, love to get access to whatever data research riot has done to better understand the economic implications for the riot games the publisher you know and league of legends revenue generation in relation to esports that data exists somewhere and they will never give it to you though well, because I, then you will negotiate yeah. against them to get that money yeah yeah of course i'm not i, I don't i don't expect <laughs> them to give it to me freely i'm just right? i'm like, just I, explaining i'm explaining to the audience yeah. why you will not get it yeah, yeah but the interesting <laughs> part of this whole situation is like at like if eight years ago, you know, when the LCS was first founded, eight, seven years, whatever, when whenever the LCS was first founded, if the we were to, uh, you know, assign everyone's leverage relative to each other, right, and how much value is people are driving for each other, you know, in relation to the whole, the teams had next to no leverage over Riot and the players had next to no leverage over Riot as well, that has changed, right? Like we, by, by virtue of growing the ecosystem together, there are now player and team brands that fans have enormous affinity for that if those people are feeling wronged if they you know if they are in fact wronged and that's communicated publicly that that can create a, you know a groundswell that is negative towards riot and can be problematic to them there are now like significant contractual relationships in place where i'm not going to get into what is what is and is not in the agreements that the, that the team signed with riot for kind of obvious confidentiality reasons but suffice it to say that the protections and the things that teams negotiate for as part of this like hey we're going to pay you millions of dollars for these rights it's a lot different than what they signed when the lcs was first founded and so you know you have seen kind of the needle move a little bit i think it will continue to a move lot. to um, be fair i i have seen and signed one of those initial team participation agreements uh when i owned a team and yeah. i will just tell you that those things were fucking shit for teams <laughs> there's no other way to put it they were absolute shit and uh, some of us got screwed over because of how shit they were. So um, 
yes, it has improved massively uh, as part of franchising. But also, it was it, to be fair, it's also a different system where Riot, you know, previously Riot created a system where they couldn't really control who was in the LCS because, like, if you had a team and you got promoted into the LCS, well, there you were, and they just sort of had to deal with you. Uh, whereas this was a deliberate selection of their partners, so obviously they would be more willing to give preferable terms to people that they had, you know, a certain level of trust and confidence in. Yeah, and it makes sense from Riot's perspective, right? Like, I mean, I having been around in the early days, I wouldn't have wanted to give any formal legal leverage to some of the folks who were involved in the LCS, right? Like, I, sure. forget about it. Right? Sure. That's just rational mean, business I, behavior. Um, that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Monte Cristo guy. I don't want him anyone near my product. Uh, anyway, I mean, so you know, they, they won't be the first nor the last. So, <laughs> that, if there's any, well, for all the nuanced conversations we're having today, that's the one thing we could say with absolute certainty. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, I digress. The, the core point I'm making here is that, like, if leverage in it's, it's much more complicated, but if leverage is purely tied to value delivery from all the parties involved, like the value being delivered by the teams and the players in the current LCS goes light years beyond what was being delivered originally. They are, you know, the teams and players are an integral part of the LCS product and what makes it successful. They are no longer kind of the fungible goods that they were before where like you pretty much could have plugged and played, like you could have taken out at the time the most popular three players and the most time most popular three teams. And it probably wouldn't have that big of an impact. That changed fairly quickly, right? Like, you know, it's hard to think about the LCS, uh, you know, in even in the early days without TSM and the enormous brand power, you know, and impact that they had in the fans. And, uh, you know, they were such a integral part of the growth of League of Legends itself. But these were more the exception than the rule, right? For the TSM, you know, Team Liquid, ex you know, Cloud9 exceptions, you also have the velocities and the uh, Team Marn and all this, you know, the annals of esports history. You know, these are names that probably most of your viewers have never heard of. Uh, go Google them and figure out what I'm talking don't, about. Don't. Right? Yeah. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing good that you're going to learn from that. Yeah, and, and, there, and, there, and there are so many examples of that, right? Like you and I, Monty, could go, like wax philosophical esports history and we're going to name dozens of orgs that were in the, you know, the LEC, the, you know, what was not the LEC at the time, but the functional, you know, precursor and interest to the LEC and, uh, you know, the EOLCS and then the, the you know, early days of the LCS. And you had a lot of not great parties involved. So we've come a long way. You know, esports has grown up a lot from a business and economics perspective. And that has changed how these bargaining relationships play out today. And that evolution will just continue as time goes on. Yeah. And, and just one last point on this. Um, you know, the other and, you know, this is a, I don't even know. I mean, this is a novel legal, novel legal question that you know, I don't think has come up and, and you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out if it ever does. But, you know, like I don't and I, I think you talked about this in your paper, um, Bryce. Um, but, you know, what is Riot is not I don't know that Riot would be a bargaining power power party to the players in any sort of collectively bargain relationship. They're not an employer. You know, the teams are the employer. Um, they have employment contracts with all their players. So, you know, I don't even know how, you know, under what legal theory Riot would be looped into that. Um, so, you know, that's another part of it. Uh, you know, like if, if a lot of the money is on the Riot side of the business and they're not a party to any collective bargaining agreement, you know, that's another reason to, you know, go slow on whether or not to unionize if, if you're not going to be able to um, touch those revenues from the yeah. player side of it. 
interestingly, and it is a novel question, but like the teams can get there, right? The teams have privity, um, and so it's a yes. it's a it's a very different dynamic than traditional sports. So it'll be fascinating to see how it evolves. That is interesting that Riot itself could potentially be cut out of any of these negotiations, right? What would that look like, and how how could they force Riot to accept whatever terms they came to in that in that instance? I mean, if they're not part of the bargaining unit, you can't force them to adopt right. anything that's collected. They'd have to they'd have to contractually agree to whatever yeah. um, whatever was was whatever agreement was reached. So they would still have veto power, effectively. This is assuming they're not part of the bargaining unit. Yes. Which is really, I mean, it's an interesting one. I agree. I, I, you know, could you actually hook them in? I think the teams could, um, but that's a, also a really interesting question and dynamic. But then, how do you create something that involves all three parties? Right. Because right now, the way the way that it functions, guys, is like, so if, to take an example, uh, what happens is is that the players and teams reach a contract agreement and then that agreement is then submitted to riot and riot has to approve it in order for it to become uh you know basically before it can actually function like i can't make a contract with the player and then have riot veto that contract and have them play for me like that doesn't work at the current time so you need legal approval though it's not like it's not blanket approval but there are all sorts of contract requirements and standards that have to be met yeah so that is that is d the process is that riot does ostensibly although there have been instances of them not doing this in the past i will say ostensibly looking at the contracts and saying okay everything in here is we approve of everything that's going on in this contract right now. It meets a certain level of our standards, correct? Yes. Great. So let's talk about some of the other contractual issues that have been developing because I think a lot of fans don't really understand what it means when players start to get equity. And this is probably going to become a more common feature of player contracts, at least in the LCS. Uh, there was a, there was an, uh, I believe the restriction is three years that a player has to play with the team. Is it consecutive years or three years total? I, I, I believe the language is just three years. I don't think it, I don't think it says consecutive. Right? I don't so think so either, but I don't remember off the top of my head, to be honest. Yeah, either. I don't either. Okay. So three years that they can play with the team and then they can start to get, what are effectively employee stock options, right? Is that the way that it's structured currently? Bryce, do you uh, do you may know more about this than I do? I'm like really, really hesitant to talk about this. To okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just uh, let's just talk about what that means because yeah, I, I'm it doesn't, let's, let's not let's level, but yes. I don't want to drill down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On yeah, the, like, I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know how it works within all these teams either. Like. So I have no idea, for example, what Bjergsen is getting, who is the primary person who has equity in a team right now, was a key feature in his renegotiation with TSM on his contract. So in that instance, if players have started to get equity, now this is very unlike most traditional sports. So how is this affecting this landscape? Because it is more or less kind of new ground and ground that we will continue to see broken as more players get equity within these teams. 
it's a really interesting dynamic it puts another uh compensation variable on the table it's you know let's it should go without saying that everyone should understand like player needs to make sure they're getting represented that they're, they're reviewing the plan to make sure they understand exactly what ownership or other interests because there's literally hundreds of ways that you can set this up right like we re we use the word equity to refer to you know profits interests and actual ownership interests mm -hmm. and phantom shares and like so there's so much legal stuff to parse here that's just not worth it. But if we just think of equity as like they're getting some upside in the financial results of the team, that's really interesting, right? Like, um, and it's a it's a major variable. It's one that is tough to quantify, but that is potentially very very valuable, right? We've talked, right? Like how I was talking earlier when we're thinking about the you know it, our player is player compensation fair right in the current market and a huge part of that is like okay so we can definitively say that like teams are not generating as much revenue back for players as they're paying into players but then what about enterprise value franchise value growth etc right these are things that now you can theoretically get players tied into as well um and when you look at for example like player compensation in traditional sports and you look at the dynamics around salary caps like i'll never forget the the arguments you know around kobe bryant may he rest in peace at the very end of his career when he was making a max contract with the lakers and everyone's like well you're you know you should be taking a pay cut this is ridiculous you're not that good of a player anymore you're still good but you're definitely not worth whatever it was like 28 million dollars however much he made that year and his response was like fuck you guys like i'm worth so <laughs> much more than 28 million dollars like if there were no salary cap you'd be paying me 100 million dollars because i am responsible for the fact that you are selling out every game i'm responsible sure, yeah. for the, you know the incredible ticket prices i'm responsible for your massive media rights deal etc you know adding if he could have taken a piece of the lakers right that would be a very interesting and different dynamic um where theoretically you can be compensating someone you know uh, someone like a bjergsen there are a few examples of this but there are players that have become like inextricably linked to the growth and success of their team and the organization as a whole um and i think having it on the table is a good thing i think there's a lot of execution versions this can be very bad but i think it's a, an interesting and cool dynamic of esports that we're starting to think about this type of compensation flexibility yeah I, I i yeah i couldn't have said it better I, I, it's in, it's very interesting there are a lot of nuances to it there are a lot of different dynamics to it um you know it's 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 novel in sports you know we haven't seen this before in any other sport where an active athlete um has had an opportunity to own an interest in a team so in in the case here because a lot of the co the t conversation is how this affects the the players association because in a world where Bjergsen is on the player council and so his job is to represent his player colleagues and yet he is it theoretically in a position where as a equity holder in TSM that he may want to suppress player salaries because he is tied to the success of the business, right? How do you deal with this conflict of interest from the players association side? Sure. Well, like it's something we've talked about within our executive committee. Um, and, you know, the, I think you deal with it in the way you deal with most traditional conflicts. First of all, everyone has to be aware that there is a potential conflict. So, you know, knowledge is, is, is power. If you know of it, if you know of it, you're much more attuned to um, making sure that, uh, you know, that a potential conflict doesn't become an actual conflict. So it's just a potential conflict at this point, right? Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, so there are a bunch of different ways to deal with it. If we were dealing with matters that directly concern TSM, um, 
you know, you can you can ask Bjergsen to recuse himself or have Bjergsen recuse himself from any of those discussions. So he's not, you know, he's not part of the discussion. He's not part of the of the any vote that might be taken or any action that might be um, might be decided upon. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's also, you know, the players will make a determination, you know, like they, they hold terms for a number of years, to, you know, their elections. And if players are uncomfortable with the concept um, of, you know, of Bjergsen or anybody else having an ownership interest and being a, you know, a, a member of the executive committee, they can, you know, they can vote and, and, uh, you know, make, you know, make their, make their. Tr- oh, no. <laughs> lost uh, I, I'll, I'll kind of pick up where he left sure. off and hopefully he comes back in to finish his thoughts so uh yeah i mean i think the points hal is making are super fair like transparency around conflicts is the most important starting point everyone has to be aware of the fact that they exist and then from there you deal with it on a case-by-case basis right like depending on we could be realistic about the fact that no player is going to own such a massive interest in their team that they're going to be in a situation where they're likely to prioritize like team interests over player interests in a vacuum right that's extremely unlikely to happen um so it's important to be thinking through like okay they have uh, this player has an interest in this team but like what is that interest and then what is their interest overall just as the fact that they are a professional player and they benefit from all these rules right if a salary cap were to come before the players association well hypothetically that could be beneficial to a player that owns a stake in a team because it's going to improve the team business we're pretty attenuated now we're saying this player is going to make a decision to cap all player compensation which can directly affect them and their future compensation so that overall the team business gets improved so that it hopefully has a you know that affects them to have an increase in the value so that their shares are worth more they're like very small shares right so i think these things uh it's easy to kind of paint a doomsday scenario around conflicts of interest but i think you have to like really drill down on like what is what is the conflict and what is the interest in order to actually evaluate like how problematic it is and then there's all sorts of ways you can deal with it either from a macro perspective like how was talking about like if we're not comfortable with the idea of someone who potentially has this bias or this conflict impacting decisions we can remove them from the executive board or on a micro scale of this particular decision it seems problematic but being aware of the conflict allows us to then make decisions on a case-by-case basis um, about what is or what is or is not appropriate. Well, it's also that the the Players Association itself could vote theoretically to change the rules of the association to prevent mm-hmm. any players who have equity from being in leadership positions. Like that absolutely. is one hundred percent something that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. So while uh, while Hal is gone and hopefully coming back, I'll uh, I'll text him real quick and see what's going on. Um, what do you think uh, a, a nice topic is from the team side is about uh, salary caps and what that could mean? Um, because obviously it would definitely be in the team's interests to introduce salary caps, especially given the revenue conversation that we had earlier. Um, do you see that happening at any time in the future, given? I mean, it's there are it's not quite as black and white as we painted it, right? Like antitrust control over market. There's all sorts of spectrum of levels of control you can engage in without having an antitrust exemption, which is what the unionization aspect of this does, right? Is it creates an antitrust exemption, um, right? How I was talking about from an affirmative standpoint of like we can't sue under antitrust law. It's that you're kind of removing it from the consideration of antitrust law when you when you get this exemption. Um, so there are ways to do some of these things 
right, absent a union. It's just you have to be thoughtful about how they're structured and difference between a soft cap and a hard cap and all this kind of stuff. But there are ways of getting there. Obviously, a salary cap is beneficial to the organizations in the same way that a salary floor is beneficial to the players, right? This is a, it's the mirrored part of every negotiation when it comes to collective bargaining agreement is, you know, you have the point you know, you have the 1% of players that are making the max that want to see the max go up so they can make more money. And then you have a bunch of players that are making the league minimum and they want to see the minimum go up so that they can make more money. And you got the players in between who probably doesn't really matter either way. Um, right. And so these dynamics are, um, you know, they play out every time a collective bargaining negotiation uh, happens in traditional sports. And on the esports side, yeah, like would capping salaries be beneficial? Sure, it would, right? It would, if the, if the cap were, kind of reasonable or if it were anything less than above whatever the highest paid player in the league is right now then you would have teams that would benefit from it because a player would come to them and say a player who in under normal circumstances if there is no cap could negotiate a salary of two million dollars a year if the salary cap is one million dollars a year they're not able to negotiate for that amount anymore right it's the it's the kobe bryant example i was just giving right well you know a cap is it's an artificial thing that causes someone to make less money in the market than they otherwise would absent the cap sorry about that oh you're happened. good uh we were talking about salary caps and how they could affect things by the way just to put into context with bright said a hard cap would be like the nfl where there is an explicit amount of maximum money that a team can pay a soft cap is what exists in the nba and by that means you can't there is a cap and if you spend over the cap then you for every dollar you spend over the cap, you have to pay a multiplier that goes into the league revenue pool. So, for example, if I pay $1 to a player to sign a player over the salary cap, then I have to pay $3 to be split up among the rest of the owners in the league. And that's compensation for my ability to potentially sign more star players, to win championships, to sell bigger media rights deals, to fill my stadium with higher price tickets, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's just baseball, which is a giant free for all. Yeah, well, it, except baseball does, baseball also has a, a, a tax system in place where if you exceed uh, a certain threshold, you also pay additional money into a league fund um, that's then divided among the non the teams that don't pay taxes. If you've ever read a sports article where they're talking about the luxury tax, this is what they're talking yes, about. Yes, that is yeah. that is what it is. And so there, there's also an argument about whether esports should, which model esports should go after. But as it exists right now, there is no salary cap, so effectively the players do have that option. And that's why Hal was bringing up earlier that the advantage of being a trade association versus a union is that they can prevent a, cal a salary cap from even existing, which is beneficial to the players especially because riot has independently set the floor they've uh, really independently fast. set the mil the minimum really fast right. we're 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 painting with broad brush uh yes. broad broad brushes broad uh, I don't yes brushes but yeah brush strokes right whatever the heck whatever the heck we're we're <laughs> talking about the players as a whole when we shouldn't be talking about the players as a whole a salary the part of the dynamic of collective bargaining as i was saying is that you know you have far fewer players for whom it is beneficial to increase the salary cap than there are players for whom it would be beneficial to increase yes. the floor um and so this is the the natural give and take of any players union in traditional sports is you have some people at the very top who have one set of interests and you have other people at the bottom and it's usually a much bigger pool of people and so 
you know, when we talk about if we're just talking about setting a cap in a vacuum, of course, it's like net net beneficial for the players to uh, not have a cap because then whoever could make more than the cap will make more than the cap. And the people who are making currently less have the potential to make more. But it's usually a, a you know, tandem thing that's negotiated as part of a broader picture of concessions that are being made. And it's important to note that, like, not every player has the exact same interest as it relates to these concessions. Right. Like there are there are many players in the LCS who would if you to, if if it was a straight self-interested vote standing standing alone today if you told them hey we're going to implement a salary cap we're going to a new rule the minimum salary is going to be a hundred thousand dollars the maximum salary is going to be a million dollars do you vote yay or nay there are many people who would vote yay and they're voting yay on a salary cap right so it's not i just want to be really thoughtful when we're talking about mm -hmm. like the player interests and noting that it, it's pretty diverse even within just that group of players yeah no that's a fair point and and you know to that point you know one of the other benefits um you know that that and look i'm i'm generally entirely opposed to salary caps so i'm just talking theoretically here but <laughs> shocking the other, shocking <laughs> shocking right you did not see that coming <laughs> um but one of the one of the benefits of a salary cap um one of the few is um it re it raises the floor for everybody so typically in a salary cap system um you know teams are every team is required to spend some amount of money um, on their players. So right now in LCS, you might have three or four teams that just historically <clears throat> underpay players. They would, the, the floor for the entire team would be raised. So it might have, it, it, you know, it typically it's like 90% of whatever the cap number is. So it, every team in the league would have to spend at least 90% of the, of the mm. salary cap on player salaries. So there would be, um, you know, there would be many players or at least some players who would benefit from a salary cap system because the floor gets raised, but you have to balance that against all the players who are constrained. Um, and it's not just constraint in salaries. The other problem with the salary cap is it constrains the market because teams oftentimes don't have salary cap space to sign free agents. So, you know, which then suppresses the value because you don't have teams bidding for a player services. Yeah. It's it, by the way, one really important uh, subtext to all this that is something that is really, really heavily thought out in all of these negotiations in the traditional sports level that isn't really thought out in esports in the current kind of open free market system is competitive balance. There isn't a lot of discussion about competitive balance in esports. It, it results in, you know, l look at the LCS, like, you know, name the teams that have made worlds in the last five years yeah, yeah, yeah. right from from the nalcs right um and there's a reason for that right like these teams um be, there are not the same systems in place that cause the you know quote unquote small market teams or the other teams to kind of get an unfair competitive advantage relative to some of these other uh, folks yes. right so you know the player draft which yes. is uh, perfect you know, segue that's where we're going next yeah great well so like the player draft is really good for teams that are struggling right and there's there's related problems to that, that you have to deal with like tanking in the nba and there's it's so this is all such an interwoven interesting dynamic but like if just just looking at his face take aside tanking and all that all those dynamics the player draft is a cool way of making it so that a bad team gets better right like you know the colts suck they get peyton manning the colts become better right um yeah i like tanking yeah, I think taking is a really fascinating strategy. I, I look, I, it, it, I see like I think tanking is good because at least it gives a fan base a level of hope <laughs> that they can improve in the future rather than just being <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you, I, I'm you, not going to. 
I think tanking might be a little far afield from this, but but I, I, I think it's interesting to have diverse strategies within a league, just like there can be diverse strategies within a video game, right? Um, so it's uh, from a philosophical perspective, it's interesting. From a product perspective, it kind of sucks, right? Like, you know, mm. it sucks. It, it sucks. Come on, Monty. Objectively, it sucks that there's a team in your league who does not care about winning. That's not a good thing. No. I mean, I'm not. I'm, it's, it's, might, not a, it's not a good thing for the league, and it's yeah. not a good thing for the fan base. For the fan I mean, base. even in the so, short term, you know, like, yeah. like you know, if you were a fan of the Philadelphia 76ers for yeah. a four or five year stretch, you had no hope. Yeah, and I almost feel less bad for the fans of Philadelphia 76ers, where there's like an intentional plan going on, and everyone's kind of buying in, and they have this whole trust the process mentality, as I do in relation to like the fan of you know some team that really wanted to get a chance to see X, like bought a ticket, wanted to see X Y Z player play, and then they get to the end of the season and they show up to the game, and like all of the best players are have ankle tweaks <laughs> you know <laughs> right? and deep thigh bruises and whatever else is going on right load management um, yeah load management whatever it is right like uh although load management actually feel i do i do think out, i do but... think at least in certain sports like the nfl where yeah. you have a 53 player roster where you know even if the organization is trying to tank it's hard to convince 53 sure. very competitive people that they want to lose a game so i i still think it yeah. ends up being pretty competitive no matter what the organization does it's obviously it it's easier to tank in a game where you have fewer players on the field or fewer yeah. players on the roster like and where you can basketball. just take your three best players and say like you're not playing then you feel the rest <laughs> roster and sure the coach and all those players are doing everything they can to win but like you didn't give them the firepower to do so so it's sure. pretty unlikely that they will but the the, the core point i was going to make is that there's there are hundreds of rules in traditional sports that are designed to create competitive balance so you don't have dynasties and so that you don't have the same teams winning every year you know you have an issue in baseball where the the incentives are not quite established the way that you would yeah. like and so like the yankees and red sox dominate right but it's part of what makes the patriots reign in football right now spectacular and i hate the patriots we all hate but the it patriots. makes it right but it makes it <laughs> so impressive yes right what they have been able to yep. do in a system that is designed for this to not happen and yet yep. they keep making it it's happen. very annoying and it, and it's because they're really, really good at what they do, right? Amazing front office who is who are manipulating things like compensatory picks and are always kind of driving value in ways that other people are not. Incredible coaching system that trains up players to kind of be the next man up and all this different stuff. It's hard for them to do that in a way that it's not hard for a team to consistently dominate in the LCS or in other places, which is not to say, by the way, that like – you know, the fact that Jack can keep re-upping rosters and keep having the competitive success that he is having is, is not a testament to Cloud9 as an organization from ownership through staff through talent. It is. It's incredibly impressive. I'm just saying there are artificial rules that exist in traditional sports to make that harder that do not exist in traditional sports. And that's whether or not you think that's good as a fan, I think reasonable minds can disagree. But like personally, as a fan in traditional sports, I like that there is something trying to drive towards competitive balance because I think it makes it a more interesting product to watch year over year. How does the player association feel about a potential draft, knowing that it can't happen until there's a collective bargaining agreement and they actually become a union? Is this something that the players have expressed any interest in? Because in general, you know, the, what you're dealing with with a draft, and especially European fans who, who you know don't necessarily have drafts within their sports, the way that it operates is like the worst teams get to pick the best uh, up and coming potential rookie players and then sign them. They don't really the players themselves don't really have a choice. They kind of have to go there like they can kick and scream and try and get traded, but it's a process. Um but for the most part they they will just agree to go to that team and then play for them. 
Yeah, I mean, we haven't had a lot of discussion about this because it's, you know, so far in the future. But, um, you know, my sense of it is that the players aren't, you know, they're not proponents of a draft. They like, you know, the idea that you can pick the team you want to play for and, and you know, negotiate for, you know. And it's not always just about money, right? It's A lot of times it's about opportunity. You know, it's about fit. So, you know, and that's the problem with the draft, right? Like you get you get sent somewhere that – you know, may not be the right fit for you. You know, you may have teammates that aren't going to be, in the, you know, like you're the kind of person that needs to be, you know, motivated this way. And, and the organization doesn't believe in that, you know, they're, you know, they have a different way of dealing with things. Um, you know, you're not going to, you're not guaranteed a role. Um, you know, it's not, it, it's not a problem in LCS, but in every other sport, you know, it may, it may be in a city or a region of the country that you have no desire to be in. You know, you grew up in California and, and now you, you know, you have to go play in. in Sounds Milwaukee like my life. Or... <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, and, and it's, you know, I, I think for most people, like most people think like, you know, oh, it's professional sports. Like who cares where you play? You're making a lot of money. You're famous. You've got all these great perks and benefits and, you know, all these wonderful things. But, you know, think about like, you know, for the average person, like, you know, you graduate from college with your degree in engineering or you know, journalism or, you know, business or whatever, you know, you graduate from law school and instead of getting to pick where you work, who you work for, um, you know, what city you work in, what company you want to work for, what industry you want to work in, you're told that you have to go and work at this one place for this one business for some untold number of years, depending on the sport, you know, anywhere from, you know, three to six years before you get a chance to, before you get a chance to go anywhere else. Like that's, that's draconian in any context outside of sports. It's, it's basically indentured <laughs> yeah. servitude. It is. Right? It is. I mean, for it a is. lot of money, but yes, it is like, yeah. it's, it's, it's profitable I mean, indentured servitude, but it is, it is, it is indentured servitude. And especially and, and, like, I, you know, I, I, you could pay me a lot of money and I still wouldn't want to work for Dan Snyder. Like you can't convince me that I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Washington originally and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, exactly. And there, and there's, I mean, as I said, there's, there are monetary components that go into this, but let's say we just control for money for a second right like there are so many other variables right we talked about the patriots and their dynasty uh, there's a huge amount written about the patriots that like it's not fun like you know <laughs> the way in which bill belichick runs his practices the way in which that team culture is it is a it, it's like that scene in remember the titans where denzel washington is yelling at pd is like no is fun anymore no not even a little bit no zero fun sir like that is actually how he coaches and there are yep. You know, compare that to like Pete Carroll, like my Seahawks, right? And Richard Sherman has talked about this ad nauseum. Like, great football player. He was like, I would never play for the Patriots. Bill Belichick would not bring out the best in me. That's just not how I operate. Like, yep. I don't want to kill myself in practice. I, I want there to be music on. I want it to be fun. I want there to be a, yes. a you know, trash talking culture and a joking around culture and all this stuff. And so, you know, there's a, there are so many different reasons why someone might want to play at a certain team. Or you might just want to, like, learn from a certain player and, like, have the opportunity to understudy or to grow or a certain coach or whatever. There's just so many variables yeah. that a draft makes out of your fans. You know, you can also get drafted by, you know, like, you know, you get drafted by a team where, you know, there's there's a, a great top and, you know, in your role and mm -hmm. like, you know, you may not, you know, you could be playing academy or as a substitute for the first two or three years of your career. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, like they think you're talented, but, you know, um, and you're, you know, like you're, you're the best player on the board, which is often what organizations draft for. And so, you know, you're stuck in a role when you could have had an opportunity to, to pick and choose your situation. And the other part of with the draft and, you know, I'm not saying this would be the, the, the outcome, but. 
you know, typically there's also, as, as Bryce pointed out earlier, there are constraints on your salary. You know, there's some sort of rookie rookie salary cap or, or you know, rookie scale. Don't you think, though, that having a draft and having teams, if you if there was a system in place where teams had to draft players, so they had to agree to a certain like league, you know, minimum minimum multi-year contract with with a new player every year or something like that. Don't you think that that would solve at least some of the issues that we see in terms of actually growing players from North America for the LCS? Because not only would it give up and coming players something to really try for, which I think might fix a lot of the the issues on the ladder. And I know how you're not an expert in like what happens on the really shitty North America server for League of Legends and how, you know, mm-hmm. most players yeah. think that it's probably not the best place to develop talent and it's too filled with trolls and all this other stuff. But you know, I think one of the problems that we have is that that we we haven't been able to develop talent. So by dangling the carrot out there, I think that that at least would have some minor effect. And the other effect is that we take veteran players and we keep them on forever in academy. And sure, that's valuable for teaching up and coming players who might have a higher ceiling how to play the game. But it also kind of takes up spots that could be used developmentally for players instead. So. I think maybe having a, a mandatory, like expanding the number of players that could mandatorily, a team had to pay, um, might actually, you know, increase the competitiveness of the North American region. Yeah, certainly it could, but uh, you can accomplish, I think, everything you talked about without having a draft. Sure. You know, it's, it's about developing players, right, and having a, a proper player development system. Uh, you know, right now, the, you know, the ecosystem is such that there's no, there's no real great pipeline you know players come from a lot of different you know they, they work their way up the ladder and, and you know they go to scouting grounds you know there are a few players who played collegiately who've come over um you know and players come from international you know from from you know international uh, you know, locations um but there's no structure for really developing players and but these are all things that teams can you know teams can say all right, well, we're going to have an, you know, an LCS team and an academy team, but we're also going to have this other developmental team. We're going to sign another five or eight players, and you know, we're going to put them on on the, the TR server. They're going to have great access. They're not going to have to deal with lag and, and all these other issues. They're not going to have to deal with um, you know, vitriol in the, in the, in the, in the streams, and, um, and they're going to get quality coaching. They're going to get you know, the best nutrition. They're going to get um, you know, they're going to work out. You know, we're going to develop every aspect of them as players. Like, you know, you can do that without a draft. You know, there, there are lots of ways to address. That is what C9 is doing, by the way. Yeah. And, you know, doing it pretty well. I, I You know, it's, it's kind of surprising that other teams haven't emulated their model. I know there are costs associated with it, but, um, you know, in the long run, if you're developing and, you know, like you look at like European football, you know, they've got, uh, they sign players starting at like eight. Well, yeah, and well, LEC too is you know has a much more robust uh, national tournament structure with with masters to develop those players that I I agree is just completely lacking here. But it's also potentially not in the best interests of the LCS Players Association to find new players who could be cheaper and supplant the current stars who consist of your organization. Correct? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think there are a lot of you know. Look, we represent the hundred players that play professionally in LCS, and you know they're go- some of them are going to be there for a long time. Some of them are going to have very short careers. Uh, you know, I 
you know, it, it's not part of the organization's, you know, mandate to just protect the players that are here. You know, you have to plan on, you know, that players are going to be replaced. And so, you know, as long as the system is, is set up that it's fair to everybody and, you know, you're not just replacing somebody because they're cheaper. Um, I mean that, you know, some teams are going to operate that way, but um, you know, I, I, I don't think we would have any opposition to a developmental system that had proper safeguards. Do you have any thoughts on this, Bryce? Player development on the team side and, and what the obligations of the team should be? I mean, I don't think there's any affirmative obligation. I think there's enormous incentives that come with doing it well, and Cloud9 is sure. a, you know, case in point for that, right? So I think, the you know, I'm a believer in kind of the way the market will shake this stuff out. I do think it's a really complicated set of problems. Like, we talk a lot about the lack of a pipeline of talent in in not just League of Legends, but esports more generally. I think it's a fair criticism. I think some games, some teams do it better than others. Uh, I think a draft can sort of solve part of the problem, but I, I view, I really view the draft as solving a different problem than this, quite frankly. Like, I, I you know, I think the draft is first and foremost about creating competitive balance. Um, and I think competitive balance is a net good for uh, any sports league because I think it's good for uh, fans of teams that are historically not as good to have a chance to get better. I think it's, you know, just naturally better for storylines if you have kind of new blood folding in and out. Um, but the flip side of that is, like, when you have the kind of perpetual dominance that we have seen in League of Legends from the Cloud9 Team Liquid TSMs of the world, these, you know, these old guard brands that have been in the LCS essentially since the beginning, um, that kind of year in, year out, outperform their competitors, it's not like they have some unfair advantage over their competition. They're doing really well, and they do it consistently, right? And so um, I, I see both sides of this argument Um you know, as it relates to player development specifically, it, there are so many layers of things that need to exist, right? Like from, let's look at it from this perspective, right? Uh, when you are a good uh, basketball player, a good four-year-old basketball player, your future is essentially defined. Like it, it's very clear what's going to happen to you. You're going to play rec ball. You're going to get identified as good. You're going to start playing summer ball. Eventually you get old enough. You'll play AEU. Eventually you'll go into high school. You'll play varsity high school basketball. If your varsity team is really good, then you will get invited to team-based showcases and tournaments, things like that, where scouts will appear. If not, that's okay. You'll get invited to things like the McDonald's All-American game, where you'll get a chance to showcase your individual talent, right? Um, and there's all sorts of summer camps and academies and things like this that you can invited to as well to showcase that talent eventually you get scouted division one level or the pro level depending on what you want to do maybe you want to go play you're abroad maybe you want to go pro okay you're evaluating or maybe you want to go to college you're evaluating your scholarship opportunities you do that you go to the pros and it's like this defined path it's not there's very little deviation from this defined path and you have like amazing coaching and scouting and all of the support infrastructure that's built up from like the very top of the funnel all the way to the bottom and in esports that doesn't exist at all yep. we don't have academies we don't have the equivalent of mcdonald's all-american game we don't have scouting really outside of like the professional teams and it's only happening at like the absolute highest level you know there isn't little league there isn't aau there's you know there's none of this and so and also collegiate have... is useless for developing pro players because they're too old by the time they go to college yeah i don't think they're too old by the time they go to college i think the core distinction is that in 
contrast traditional sports where bigger, stronger, faster matters. And so that body development time matters. And for every LeBron and Kobe that's able to succeed, there are dozens that are not because they're not ready for for that challenge, right? It's the outliers that do. In esports, that's not the case. And so you can be in your prime at 17, 18 years old um, in a way that even like LeBron and Kobe were good enough to play in the NBA when they were 17, 18 years old, but they weren't. They, they they had not reached anywhere near their skill ceiling because they had not grown into their bodies fully yet. Yeah. And that's um, true in sports like the NFL, where literally as a man, you're just not going to have the upper body strength to play professional football yeah. at 18 years old. Like that, yeah, 100%. No one has that, so... Yeah, I can, Kevin Kevin Durant literally could not do the bench press once when he entered the NBA Combine. That's a true story. He was <laughs> wow, the only really? player in the Combine. Yeah, he was second overall pick, and he couldn't bench 185 I, I no once. Um, right? Pretty good basketball player, though, as it turns out. Yeah. So, it turns, so, out, turns out that that wasn't that important. Yeah, it turns out, like, yeah. I mean, it, it, the strength matters eventually, right? He got bullied a little bit as a rookie and stuff like that, but, like, he worked it out, <laughs> clearly. So, look, the core point I'm making here is that, like, the draft is this thing that's happening at the very bottom of the funnel and arguably sure. impact this on some level. But like the what we really have to do is solve this entire rest of the funnel part of the problem as relates to development. Um, and that'll happen over time, right? Like I often joke that esports evolves in doggy years. You know, it, we've only been real business for, I don't know, five years roughly, right? And so there's been a lot of folks at the professional level, understandably so. We do filling in that that massive gap between the five-year-old who shows affinity for video games and the 18-year-old that's good enough to play in the LCS is going to be enormously beneficial to the entire ecosystem, fans, teams, players, league, et cetera. And that, that is work that we've started to undertake, but there's a lot left to be done. And it also is problematic within esports simply because we don't have the you know, 50 years of existence of the NBA and the even, I don't know, 100 years of existence of basketball as a sport, right? And because esports like cycle and change and the core problem that people might not understand with esports is that it cycles and change changes based on technological developments so if you actually think i mean this is this is getting like weird into esports theory but i love this shit um so if you actually think about the development of esports and when they were popular like you know for example in the early 2000s sure counter-strike was around but it was primarily dominated by rts if we look globally and a, a big part of the reason of that is because a 1v1 game was technologically easier and when the internet was unstable if somebody disconnected well somebody lost and somebody won and it wasn't ruining the game for like nine other people in that game right it had we had to get to a point where there were there were the technology existed and the internet speeds became generally fast and stable enough so that you could have good team-based games then we see the rise of mobas then we see the rise of csgo right now the technology to run a hundred person battle royale game did not exist when league of legends came out right and so we are dealing with this weird problem where in the future we're probably going to move to vr esports i think that is inevitable at on a long enough timeline and when you do that, like we couldn't have even have dreamed of Battle Royale as a genre. Like I never heard somebody in 2010 say, you know, it'd be really cool if we uh, if we took 100 people and then they all fought against each other until like only one team won. Like that wasn't even a concept. So we're going to have esports that are not even or competitive games that are not even concepts to us right now um, that are enabled due to better Internet connections potentially quantum computing, VR, all of these other technologies that are going to exist. Now, the reason why I'm making this point is to Bryce's point of having this pipeline. How do you build a pipeline when the games are constantly changing that takes somebody from 
five years old all the way to potentially going pro when they're 17 and 18. It's taking a gamble on something that you don't even know is going to exist in that 13 year later. Like if I took a five year old now and started training him in League of Legends, I would bet that in 13 years, VR is going to be very commonplace. And what does League of Legends look like in a VR environment? Is it is it even interesting in a VR environment, right? So it's it's a really strange problem. Well, so I, I think about, I, I love geeking out on this stuff too. I think it's really fascinating. VR, I think is gonna be this kind of, um, this massive shift whenever the technology gets there. And we're pretty far away from the technology getting there, to be totally honest. Um, sure. Yes. But like, whenever we do get there, it's I'm talking about this... 13 years in the future. So sure. There, <laughs> whenever we do get there, it's, it's likely there will be a shift where like a, a human being's physical prowess will impact their results in a game in a way that they do not right now. Right. And, and that will be this massive shift. But let's, so I think we have to like set VR itself aside because well, I do think VR esports are inevitable and will be popular. I also think more traditional forms of gaming will continue to uh, be really interesting to people. And I think you'll continue to have tier one esports that are not VR or for my purposes, not a type of VR where your physical ability, like, you know, virtual football or whatever, where your size, strength, speed actually impacts your results in the game. That's, so, that's an entirely different conversation. This is a, right, this so, is a different show, but yes. <laughs> right. So setting that aside for a second, I actually do think that there are uh, fungible, translatable skills that you develop by becoming really good in a, a one video game that translates to the to the next. And FPS is a down, great yeah, example this breaks down a little bit Exactly. This breaks down a little bit by genre and the types of skills that you require, but like F, uh, someone who is really good at a certain type of FPS is very likely to be good at another type of FPS. Whether it's a console or PC game matters a lot here, right? If you're used to using mouse keyboard or if you're used to using, you know, controller and aim assist and all the things that come with it. So, but, but there are tons of very translatable skills and we see this all the time. I mean, like, you know, I'm really into TFT right now, right? Which is uh, Riot Games, uh, you know, auto battler uh, game. And the, you know, Pult, the famous StarCraft player, yes. made a run and became the rank one player a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and that's just it's fascinating it's not i'm not saying that it's one to one you had to work really hard you had to learn tft etc but a lot of the skill sets that he developed the complex real time decision making right from starcraft really translate tft not so much the mechanics cuz tft is not a mechanically intensive not, game not until but, the 1v1 at the end but yeah right but but we see a lot of there's but, a but, lot but part of so the, many examples part of the reason why polt is number 1 right now is simply because he has insane mechanics you have to say it cuz the 1v1 at the end he's actually like nuts at right yeah i've watched i've watched a lot of pull i think he, he is very good he's he's you know the most gifted mechanical tft player that i've seen though i think <laughs> mechanics are responsible for five sure. percent of the game result max it does affect it but like most of what made him good was he's an incredibly intelligent uh gamer and the way in which he approached the game was a little bit different and he was very very good um and i think we see this all the time i mean it's worth noting that while like it's not like basketball translates directly to football or anything like that there are tons of people it's like basketball players will often play volleyball in the offseason because it's working on very sim certain skill sets right improving jumping capability trap ball tracking all this kind of stuff a lot of people do track in the offseason for the kind of the obvious conditioning benefits and for my money lebron james could have played like you know, half a dozen sports at the absolute tier one professional sure. level if he wanted to, right? So, well, he's you know, a monster Mike, though, so right for sure. Michael Jordan, same thing, right? Like, there's this, you know, I'm glad people with the last dance are getting some exposure to this and realizing that, like, turns out Michael Jordan probably could have played professional baseball if he actually wanted to stick with it. He was that good. Um, and so there's, I think there is value to developing this pipeline, even if someone spent five years training from age eight so, to age 
13 playing League of Legends, that there are other games that will be popular for which their skills are likely to be valuable. Yeah, before we go down the rabbit hole too far on this, because it's like an entirely different show, which I do think is interesting, and maybe we'll run a show next week on like theory crafting the future of esports, because I think it'd be super interesting. Um, my, My counter argument to that is the skills could change based on technologies. For example, if I teach somebody, so if I teach somebody like hand-eye coordination via mouse and keyboard to play Counter-Strike today, but in 13 years, Counter-Strike is played on VR and I'm actually aiming something, that's an entirely different skill set, which is way different, right? Because even if we said, okay, we're translating these exact maps into VR, but now you have to aim with your hand, like actual, like hold on to a, a like a prop gun and shoot it that way. That's like super, super different. Whereas I feel like it's a much easier bet in some ways that some of these same skills catching a ball is a relevant skill in many different sports. Right. And it's not yeah, fundamentally and sports have a longevity that's yeah, goes exactly. way beyond gaming in general. I mean, all I can say to that is VR is an interesting wild card here. You're kind of assuming mass adoption of VR and dominance of the entire gaming market I mean, I of VR. An, I, I think if it, it's either that is inevitable or like Im- implants are inevitable that allow us to see the game in our heads, right? You, you might be right. I mean, like my, my thought process on this is I think it becomes a massive part of the gaming market, but it doesn't become the whole gaming market. I mean, I'm a huge believer in mobile gaming. Smartphones aren't going anywhere. The game quality is going to continue to improve. And I think we're going to sure. wind up with extremely successful mobile esports at some point. And if you got, if we started doing mobile esport training for an eight year old and the game changed every year, they're still developing an enormous amount of translatable skills. So I recognize we're far afield. I'll stop talking, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think you guys are, you know, you're you're both talking about the same thing, and and you know, some of it is just specialization. You know, like if if five year olds and eight year olds play a variety of games, and and they have just an innate ability to be good at gaming, um, you know, they'll, the, you know, those skills are translatable. It's just at some point you're just going to become a specialist, and and that's when you ascend to to the top tier. So one of the topics that we do have to talk about in terms to get back to the Players Association issue, and I know that both of you are going to be limited in what you can say in terms of protecting your clients' interests on these topic on this topic, but when we have an issue like what happened with Dardoch, now Dardoch has been placed on Dignitas right now, so he has found a new team, but from the Players Association perspective, what happens when a player is put in a situation where their negotiating position is potentially compromised by a team and how do you approach that and what are the kind of various avenues of recourse that you have sure well i mean the first the first step is to reach out to the player and you know find out what they feel you know what what you know how they feel this has impacted them and um you know and we discuss what potential options are available um, you know, a situation like the Dardock situation was really unfortunate. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, look, it should have never happened. And, um, th- there is a question about, you know, how much it, it impacted his ability as a, as a player to go find another team. And I'm super sure. excited and, and happy that he's, you know, he's been signed with Dignitas and, you know, I, I think it, it's a, it's a great opportunity for him. Um, but the problem with it is, is, you know, it's a, 
it's a team dynamic. You know, this is something that, you know, it's one, it's, it's a team executive having a conversation with, with, I don't even know who you know, Lena was talking to, but with, you know, presumably some other um, team executive. Um, and, uh, you know, it got out, it, it, it had, a, it has some level of impact. There's no question, but, um, you know, we don't, we're not involved in, in team decisions about trading players, you know, re-signing players, um, you know, I'm sure conversations like that happen all the time. They're just usually not broadcast. So or happening you know, around players on the team or happening around other players on the team. Correct. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a limit to what, a, you know, what, what we can do in a situation like that, particularly if the player doesn't want, you know, any action taken. Isn't there a fundamental fear, though, that the player taking action in a situation like that will result in a worse scenario for themselves? Uh, I, I mean, look, I think that that's something that um, is out there. Uh, you know, you have to. You only have 10 teams in the LCS. So, yeah, like, the theoretical retribution could be enormous, right? Sure. But, you know, sometimes people want to protect their rights regardless of the consequences. Um you know, you, you see that in sports, you see that in, in life, you know, where, you know, somebody, even though they know it's going to cost them their job, you know, whistleblowers, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're going to be subject to all sorts of, of issues, but, um, I, I know how that works. Trust me. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, I know you so, um, yeah, so it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very complicated. You know, I don't want to get too deeply into, you know, in discussions that we had, um, but, um, you know, I, I hope this is a one-off. You know, I hope everyone has learned from something like this and we never have another situation like this again. Um, but, you know, the key, to me, the key is that the player knows that, that you know, we're here as a resource. You know, we'll work with them to, you know, the maximum extent of our ability to, you know, put them in the best position possible going forward. And, um, you, know, you know, we'll talk to the teams. We'll talk to Riot about it. Uh, you know, I... I I think ideally Riot would have been a, a little more assertive on this and, and um, we all wish that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think this is a situation that, where it should have just been left to TSM to, um, you know, to, to make their determinations about the outcome. So you, you object Bryce representer of the teams. Yeah. I mean, I, I should give the caveat just because I'm a lawyer that like, I'm not, I, we represent TSM. I'm not here in my capacity as a representative sure. of TSM or even quite frankly, as the teams as a whole, right? Everything I've been saying has been my personal opinion about stuff. I'm sure I have many clients that disagree with some of the stuff that I've said today. Um, you know, the, there's not there's not a lot I can say about the situation. Like everyone agrees it's unfortunate. TSM said the agrees it's unfortunate, right? Like um like it shouldn't have happened, it happened. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's really much value into me getting into the weeds on some no. on a lot of this to be totally honest with you. Like, you know, uh, everyone pretty much is in agreement on like the fact that this shouldn't have occurred um i don't think there's actually like I, I think a lot of the arguments around this have been kind of red herrings like i don't think that the argument over whether or not it actually had the impact on dardock is is i think that's a little bit divorced from the core question surrounding like the you know the conflict of interest and the dynamics around having the conversation in front of a player and all this type of stuff like i think that a lot of this stuff has kind of been convoluted I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm glad Darrock wound up on another team. I hope I, I wish Josh nothing but the best. I hope he's successful. Um, I thought that some of the 
public outcry on this was uh, like a little disgusting, quite frankly, like the, the level of like personal attacks and some of the vitriol around this towards Lena was like, uh, was appalling. And uh, sure. in, in, in many ways I thought was actually like the worst behavior associated with all of this. Um, like, um, I don't know. People make mistakes. Like, I don't know. I, I guess I don't really know what to say. Like, I don't think anyone expects me to defend what happened. Right. Um, but in terms of like riot getting more involved, I, I honestly don't know. I'm not even like I'm not sure that a rule was violated. I'm not sure like anything was technically wrong here, aside from just like the obvious um, like core issue with the fact that this conversation should not have happened on stream and should not have happened in front of a, a player on the team. So, for from your perspective, Hal, it's not an issue unless Dardock wants to bring it to you and say, "Hey, I need help from the players' association to do X, Y, and Z," or "I want your advice or support." Yeah, I mean, look, I won't say it's not an issue. You know, it's it's a uh, it's in a vacuum. Um, it, it, you know, it's an issue that you know potentially affects uh, you know other players, and you don't you know you want to make sure that there's no precedent being set here. I, you know, I don't think that's a this is a situation where that's something we have to worry about. Uh, you know, I, I agree with Bryce. I think it was an accident. Um, you know, I don't think. I mean, I certainly think Lena wasn't being careful about her discussion and, 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 you know, that she was having at that point in time, but, um, you know, and she shouldn't have been in the room with, with Peter for sure when that was going on. But, um, beyond that, I, you know, I don't think this is something that we have to worry about being repeated. And yeah, if the player doesn't want to, you know, take any action, you know, I have to respect that. Um, you know, it's not, look, we, there are often times where we have to defend principles. Um, I don't think this is one of those instances. Clearly, that's where I disagree with you guys, but I've said my piece on it. So, well, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and and look, my 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 point about riot is I don't, I'm not saying that you know I don't think there's some level of of discipline or action that should have been taken. I just think that there needed to be some additional commentary about it from the riot side of things. Just uh, and, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think what TSM's public comments were, were, they were fine, but they, you know, I don't think they really addressed what this, you know, what the situation was and, and how it potentially impacted Dardock. And I think, you know, some, I, I just feel like, you know, some additional level of, of at least remorse or acknowledgement of, of, you know, all right, this was really bad, um, would have been more appropriate. Uh, well, if you know TSM, they will never do that. So that's just the people you're dealing with um, in these situations. Um, so, but can, can, I just wanted to, before I forget the point, I just yep. wanted to go back real quick to our, what we were talking earlier about competitive balance. And, um, you know, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but, you know, this is an issue that is has a lot, a lot, a lot of different factors to it. And, you know, a draft would potentially address some of the issues, but, you know, a draft also doesn't really, um, uh, you know, like it, 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 in some ways it inhibits a team's ability to get better because, you know, you're, when you don't have a draft, if, if a, a team that hasn't historically performed well wants to go out and say, you know, all right, we're going to sign these top three amateurs and we're going to pay more than anybody else and we're going to give them a better opportunity than anybody else, those players are likely going to go with that team. So, you know, whereas they can't do that in a draft situation, you can't yeah. go and sign like the top three players because that's just not, you know, unless you're like super great trader and you manage to acquire a bunch of draft picks. So, 
you know, it, it cuts both ways. And, you know, I think, a, a, you know, a draft certainly has some elements that would benefit teams from a competitive balance standpoint. But, you know, there are a lot of things there that um, there are a lot of ways to improve your, improve your team absent a draft that aren't being utilized. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, you're right. Boy, there's no way back <laughs> on this. <laughs> there's there's literally dozens of things that you can do for a competitive balance, and they're all kind of interwoven into each other. Agreed. Like a salary cap also has a large impact on competitive balance, for example. So as we as we finish up this episode, I want to talk about where you guys think what what the what the next goals are for the interaction between the players and the association and the team. Like, is there anything that you would like to see changing or things that you'd like to do in the future as part of this or long term goals that you think esports should have in regards to um, having players associations or potentially players unions in the future? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, in the short term, there were a lot of things, you know, we had a meeting with, um, we had our inaugural meeting in December with Riot and the, and um, all 10 teams um, in a room and uh, several members, myself and several members of the play, of the executive committee. And, you know, we had a whole list of, of things we wanted to discuss. Uh, you know, I think it was a very productive discussion. Um, you know, we had a lot of, we got viewpoints from a lot of teams, you know, teams don't all think the same way. So, you know, I think it's very important to, you know, for everyone in the room to sort of get everyone else's perspective. And, and you know, I think that was uh, a successful outcome of that meeting. Um, you know, one of the things that we changed uh, sort of basically out of that meeting was uh, adjusting the practice schedule to, you know, make it more concise and, and compact and, you know, not have the players practicing 12, 14 hours a day, like um, some teams were having them do previously. Uh, you know, we have other goals that we want to um, work on to, you know, improve player health and well-being and and lifestyle issues. Um, you know, we'd love to working on um, trying to establish some period of time in the off season where they have no team activities. You know, that's like what the CSPPA really... has done already, which is they yeah. have uh, in Counter Strike. There is a mandated player break every year. Yeah, yeah, that's an important goal that we're you know we're working toward. Um, you know, we, we've, I think we've established, um, rules around a mandatory day off. So, you know, that's another positive thing that, um, has, has benefited from our discussions. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that we're working on and talking about. Um, we can't talk about them all now, but sure. <laughs> you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, that, look, I think the relationships are good. Uh, you know, I think we're all respectful of each other's interests and, and, and objectives. And, um, you know, we're working on, trying to, to do things collaboratively and cooperatively. Um, you know, there's not a lot, uh, there's not a lot of things where we've run into a brick wall. So that's encouraging. Um, you know, I think there have been instances where, you know, we, we've, we've had to talk about, you know, well, this could be a potential legal action if, you know, something's not, not adjusted here. And, and that usually accomplishes it. They probably get on the phone with Bryce and say, Hey, can we really not do this? And he says, no, you really shouldn't. So, <laughs> So, um, no comment. You know, <laughs> so it, it, look, it's a, it's an interesting system with, you know, riot in the position they're in, you know, relative to the teams and the players and, um, you know, on some issues you know, they're, they're supportive of player interest on others, they're supportive of team interest. Um, and you know, it's really just about finding common ground as often as we can to, you know, make this just overall a system that works as effectively and uh, efficiently as possible for everybody. So to tag on to that, uh, since you did spend 
over a decade representing NBA players and their interests. Is there anything that you think the NBA did that you'd really love to see or you think would be great uh, for the LCS Players Association to to adopt? Uh, I mean, one of the things that I've been having discussions with Riot and the teams on, I think doing more player programming to, you know, help players um, both during their careers on on various issues like financial management, you know, health and wellness, um, and also creating avenues for um, opportunities after they're done playing, whether it's establishing programs to help them become coaches, to help them become front office executives. Um, we recently entered into a partnership with NACE, the National Association of Collegiate Esports, um, to provide a pathway for players to go to college after their pro careers are done. That's um, what I really think is great about college, by the way, is like the way I view college esports is the retirement option, because what I want pro players to do is to take their experience within within esports, get a full ride scholarship, go get an yep. education and reenter the industry as managers or other skilled uh, uh, degree individuals like that's to me, that's where the real value of collegiate esports is. Absolutely. And and also not just collegiate esports, but high school esports, you know, get the college degree and then go become a high school coach or sure, coach yeah. a youth team and, and, you know, work on development that way. I mean, that's the real development pathway, right? Like it has to Very good point. happen at the elementary and middle school and high school level where you have these teams and with good coaching and, and good strategy and, and develop players that way. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, programming is an important component, pathways to future opportunities. You know, one of the things I've talked with about Riot and the teams is, I'd like for them to utilize their relationships with their sponsors to create internships and, and, you know, job shadowing possibilities for players. So, you know, their industries and jobs that they can see if they're interested in and, and pursue once they finish playing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think to me, the, the focus at this point is creating opportunity both while people are playing and also for um, their post-career opportunities. That's great. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Bryce, uh, where, where do you want to see this relationship going like and evolving into the future? If you had to if you had to say like what the ideal scenario would be, at least in League of Legends between the teams and the Players Association, what do you picture that relationship being? I think we're on the path. I mean, I remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago, three years ago, pre-Players Association was founded well below 50% of the LCS had any form of representation looking at their contracts. They didn't really know what they were signing. There was no thought process to the business side of their lives. And I think that we've come a long way in terms of creating a culture by which players start to think about and care about these things. And I think the Players Association and how have become this amazing conduit for, let's talk about this. Let's think about this more and let's marshal a list of issues that we care about and let's have conversations about it. Um, and I think we're going to keep heading that direction. For me, I think there's this big shift that's going to happen. Hell, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Players Association is still not independently funded, right? It, correct. So that to me is, I think, the next big step. But by the way, guys, by the way, as, as Hal said earlier, the average player salary is now over $400,000. Yes. For fuck's sake, pro players, fund this yourselves. You I, can, I agree. You can you can take a small percentage of your earnings and fund and pay Mr. Biagas here to do his goddamn job independently. Please do yeah, that. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. It all make the pitch for Hal. Like, 
the reality, like they can definitely afford it at this of stage course in they time. Can. <laughs> and the fact, like Hal could have a bigger budget. He could hire people. He could do more, right? Um, to advocate for the player interest. And I think that's a net good for the industry. I really genuinely believe that. I think having an organized body of players that are being thoughtful about that stuff is only going to, from a macro perspective, improve all of the aspects of the industry that we want to think about when it comes to professionalization, monetization, creating something that's sustainable in the long run. Um, and quite frankly, like the reality of the situation is, I'm sure, like, I don't know, Hal's not going to put anyone on blast, but I'm sure there are players that are very bought into what Hal is doing. And there are players that are very not bought in, right? It's kind of the nature of the beast. I think getting some skin in the game changes that buy-in dynamic a little bit. and uh, It might actually the make them do things, too. I mean, for me, like regardless like like you say having skin in the game and having a, a percentage of their salary paid towards the upkeep of the association would at least make them give a fuck yeah and i think that will uh i think that's the next really big kind of step that should happen obviously you know i'm sure how wants it happen too on some level right there's no reason you don't you don't take a public position on if you don't want to but like i think i think it's a good thing if it you know I, i've always thought riot did it incredible first of all like i thought riot took on a necessarily amount of shit for the conflict of interest when this first happened the, i think it was correct uh that like people should be skeptical and concerned of that but i think they've done a really good job of kind of staying out of it and actually not affecting the results at all it was very clear at the time players were not going to start this themselves riot didn't just put money together right how to describe the process at the top of the show yes. of like they sourced a bunch of candidates and they interviewed people and they narrowed it down to a group of three people who thought they could do a really good job and they organized a meeting where they could all come give presentations like right did a lot of work to get this yes. off the ground we're now three years in like the players need to like recognize this is real business this, is, this really matters to them to their interests to the long term of the industry and and they should really be getting some skin in the game and i think that would change a lot of the dynamics in terms of what the player association can accomplish how how uh successful will be in reaching player goals and i think that there's a lot of value for the industry as a whole in that transition happening so for me that's the big next thing but in the in the interim and even when that happens like it's just about continuing to build a genuine dialogue where like the players go from being this group of individuals who all have kind of individual concerns some of whom actually voice them many of whom do not and they just kind of operate quietly even if they do have issues into something where they can be organized they can be thoughtful they can clearly communicate what their needs are and we can all work together to accomplish those things which is not to say that you know how and i will never disagree about something we absolutely will it's not to say that the teams or the league will always give to the player concessions that of course will not happen but um i, I could say definitively right like how and i have a really good working relationship and he's been in a net positive for the industry period um and i would like to see that like continue to evolve right and, and to uh have that mirrored right we're talking about esports with this broad brush a lot like to see it mirrored in other games and to and to see the players kind of get better representation think more think about themselves more as professionals and i think this is a really good step in the process yeah and i also have to say that a lot of the skepticism around the the foundation of the players association was for two reasons one of which is that Hal here hasn't really been a public face, and so I'm grateful that you came on this show. And actually, now I th I hope people, as a result of this, have somewhere to go to get a much better idea of what this dynamic is. It's the purpose of doing this. Um, but secondly, like you know, people were suspicious because Riot has pulled a bunch of bullshit in the past, and I think that people were suspicious about how much they would control the Players Association, what it meant for them to be putting forward the candidates, what it meant for them to be funding it, um, because they they don't 
honestly have a very good history of not doing shady things. But with that said, this is a very different group that is operating Riot Esports these days than used to operate Riot Esports, right? It has effectively been an almost complete changeover in that department. So I do think that even as somebody who did get screwed in many ways by Riot, I, the people who are running it now are not the same people who made those decisions. And I think that that's really key for people to understand is that there is an entirely new group of management for the most part that is that is operating this. They've changed, you know, they've changed commissioners multiple times. They have brought in John Needham to run the entire esports division. These are all new people with new ideas. And we haven't seen the same, at least I am not aware of the same pattern of of behavior that existed previously. So it's really key to kind of think of this as, as a, a wholly new group of people who are doing this. And I think that they've been doing, in my in my eyes, a much better job. So I, I have to well, just say, wait, I have to jump in really right. fast. Like, I, yep, I, okay. I have a lot of very close friends who are part of this sure. kind of old guard, and it's important to me that it's not painted as, like, old, evil, new good. I agree. I think Riot, as a company, has made a lot of changes over the last few years. I think a lot of those changes for the better. I think they're a better partner. I think that they, uh, the way in which they're thinking about the LCS as a product and some of the stuff they're doing is is really good. I just, I had to say that. Like, it, it, there, were, there were a lot of things that have changed in the company, not just the people. Sure. And some of the people... And so, I agree. I didn't, there are some of the people who were at Riot three years ago, four years ago that are not there today that I am glad they are no longer a part of the decisions. But there are some people who were there who I think were phenomenal who uh, I just want to make sure we're not like – Sure. I'm not in any way perceived as dragging them through the mud by not saying anything. Yes, regardless regardless of what you think about the individual people, I think it has changed the, – the process has changed for the better and factually many of the same people are no longer there and there are new people there. Yes. So uh, just real quick, so a couple of things. One, first of all, thank you both for you know all the nice things you said. I appreciate it, um, and and I agree. Like Bryce, it's been you know pleasure working with you on the occasions where we've had uh, uh, to cross paths on various things. And uh, Monty, thank you for having me. Um, happy. Uh, I don't live in the shadows intentionally, as you notice. I, <laughs> no, I don't think you do. I got out of the shadows and moved to, <laughs> moved to a brighter spot so people could actually see me. Um, but uh, you know, look, uh, the way I see it is. I'm the voice to the players, you know, I, I don't, when it's, when it's worthwhile to get out there publicly, you know, I will do so and I'm happy to, but you know, I'm, I'm designed, you know, the, the operation is designed to, to work behind the scenes and work for the benefit of the players. Like that's my constituency ultimately, you know, as if they're happy, nothing else matters. So, you know, that's, that's sort of the ethos that I operate under. Um, I recognize that there are definitely times where it's it's important to be out in the public, and I'm happy to do that, and happy to be on your show anytime you you'd like to have me. Um, and just on the riot point, so yes, you know we are we are you know we're funded by Riot. We're working on various things to um, to either increase our funding and eventually become independent. I'm I'm working on some sponsorship deals. Uh, you know, the last couple of months have not been not been kind no. to those efforts but um you know I, I think there's there's still a lot of interest out there and if there you know anybody out there who's interested in a sponsorship please reach out to me um but uh, <laughs> but um you know riot has been uh, you know like they've been as good as, as good as you could possibly hope they would be in all this like they they are completely hands-off they they send us the money to fund the organization and they they don't ask or imply or um, you know, seek out anything from us other than 
you know, that we continue to, to operate on behalf of the players. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I can't say enough good things about Chris Greeley and Winston Baker and Zach Elliott, who are my three primary touch points. Um, you know, they're helpful when they, when, when asked to be helpful, they're responsive on issues that are important to us. And, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, and, and, you know, same thing with the teams, you know, I, I think we're all, we all recognize that, you know, we're in a very early stage of, of this business and of this ecosystem. And it's important for its future success that everybody cooperate, work collectively. And, you know, you have to sometimes put aside what's in, you know, your individual best interest for the best interest of, of, you know, the whole operation. And I think for the most part, um, you know, that's still where we are, you know, are there issues where we disagree and we're going to fight and we're going to have problems? Absolutely. But ultimately, you know, I think at least for now, um, you know, everybody's sort of focused on doing what's best for the, the, um, the overall uh, entity. Yeah, to quote, to quote a mentor of mine, Josh Schwartz, he, he who, uh, like Hal, has a lengthy <laughs> traditional sports background. Uh, I remember something really profound he said to me a couple years ago, and it was, enjoy this time because we are genuinely still in the time in which we are – all parties can look at this and say rising tide lifts all ships, and we can all actually like sacrifice a little bit of self-interest here or there in order to grow the overall mm-hmm. pie. He's like, it will not always be like this. Yep. Eventually, all these par- – relationships will just become strictly adversarialized kind of in their nature they should be like in traditional sports where it's really just a zero-sum game but we're still in building mode and it's cool that we get to do that and if everyone can think about it from that perspective we'll be much more successful in building the foundation on which this will all grow i think that's really one of the exciting things about being in this industry and i think a part of the reason why all three of us are here because I mean, strictly speaking, none of the three of us had to choose to be in this industry uh, based on our our backgrounds. And for me, that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be here is because it's you know, it is annoying and frequently unethical, uh, but it is also very exciting. And there's a lot of chance to do to do really good work here. Um, And I, I appreciate collaborating with people who have that interest. And like you're saying, Bryce, there's so much growth left that we don't really have to worry about uh, being at each other's throats at this point in time. Um, not that like, later. yeah, that comes later. That comes later. Once you kind of reach the market ceiling, that's when it gets nasty. But we don't have to be nasty to each other right now. So it's quite pleasant <laughs> with the right people, with the right people. Some people choose to make it unpleasant, and that's unfortunate. But <laughs> there's, there's, there's always those people. <laughs> like, like, for example, our beloved show host from time to time. <laughs> and, and by the way, you know, it's nice that there there's at least one team that uh, is no longer around that uh, causing headaches for everybody. So. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for joining me. I appreciate this conversation. I hope this will uh, allow some people to get some better insight into how this relationship functions and and what the future of it could be. And thank you for coming for two hours here and talking about it. Really fast, because I know we're five minutes over. I never have a shout out. Can I do a shout out one time? It's a good one. Is it to me? It's it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can. Are the only good shout outs to you, Monty? Okay, so... Uh, for those of you who didn't see the chaos behind me, I we're currently fostering five kittens, Adorable. and four four of them are adopted. This little guy is Remy, and he is the sweetest, and he is not yet adopted. So if anyone lives in the LA area and wants a kitten, I have an amazing kitten for you. And why why is he the one that hasn't been adopted yet? Uh, I actually don't What's know. What's wrong it's with him? 
There's no, there's literally nothing wrong. With that. As you can see, total. This guy is he a looks love. Adorable. He's like a, he's an amazing cat. Um, I, I don't know how it shook out. Like we adopted a couple of them as pairs, um, and then one of them, like, like basically, I don't know, described their personalities and looked at them on video. And um, anyway, you can tell this guy is like amazing. amazing he'll, 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 you're, you're, you're going to be besieged by, by. Uh, I hope so. So uh, hit this up. This guy deserves to be adopted. Oh, hit up, me. hit up at esports law on Twitter. If you yes. would like a Los Angeles cat that is adorable, um, Bryce yes. will send you pictures and descriptions. That is so many. That is great. I love it. As a as a fellow feline enthusiast, um, I appreciate that. Sweet. So Thanks good shout out. Good shout out. Thank you. <laughs> I will now retire from shout outs. I've had one shout out in my life, and I'm done. Do you have any shout outs, Hal? Do you have any animals that need fostering in the New York area? <laughs> no, no, no. We, we've, got, we've, got, we've got two that we adopted, so uh, we're, we're good. You have 100 animals to take care of as part of the LCS Players Association, <laughs> so that's enough. That is the perfect that's, that's, that's <laughs> And you already thank got you, you already got Dardock adopted, so good job there. Good job. Oh, God. Well, thank you. <laughs> Spiraled out of control. We made it to the very end. I'm I held it in. I held it yeah, in, guys, but we got there. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Thank guys. Thank you. Really appreciate it.